Welcome to OnAmp. Oh no, not another marketing podcast. I'm your host, Will Davis. I'm the Chief Marketing Technology Officer and co-founder at RightSource with over 20 years experience in the marketing space. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from strategy to content to MarTech platforms and everything in between. You'll hear honest talk about successes and failures with our guests, plenty of analogies, maybe a couple jokes, and a lot of data points along the way. I certainly talk to a lot of companies and they say there's really nothing different about what we do and what we offer. Uh-oh. Right? How frightening is that? Especially if you are the person or persons leading the company. Welcome. Thanks for joining us uh, today with me, a returning guest, uh, recovering New Jersey Guido, Notre Dame alum and CEO of RightSource Marketing, Mike Sweeney. Welcome, Mike. How are you? Why does that Guido thing come up all the time? It's sort of part of the standard intro for you. So um, brought you back today because we really wanted to drill into one of the topics that came up in our first episode, uh, which was a little bit of that uh, uncomfortable level, maybe for companies and for marketers, how uh, when you get to a certain level and people view it as successful and um, either marginally or massively, I think were your phrases, um, and then how do people get to that next level? Like sometimes you have to kind of tear pieces down to build it back up and that can be really uncomfortable. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we, I talk about sports a lot and the parallels between sports and business. And um, I think it's, it's not unlike you see situations for you basketball fans out there. Toronto Raptors make it to the Eastern Finals last year, which is an accomplishment in and of itself. Uh, and then they fire their coach, which is kind of goes opposite to what people would think. It's like you just almost made it to the pinnacle, and now you're going to fire their coach. But I think – I won't speak for the Raptors. I don't know them. But it's because maybe that guy can't take us to the next level we need to get to. Well, they went even further, right? They fire their coach. They trade arguably their best player or at least their second best player uh, for a guy who barely even played last year, may or may not be coming off of an injury, depending on what you listen to. So, I mean, when you talk about taking risks to get to the next level, but, you know, again, not too many sports analogies, hopefully, but LeBron left the East. Maybe now if you're the Raptors and your lineup's getting a little bit older, you, you got to decide when you're going to go all in. Yeah, and I think the point is the, the business parallel is uh, uh, you may think you've made it, but there's always another level. And you have to think about when you think you've made it, and yet you realize I we need to take this to another level. Uh, how, how do you do that? And often it's not just adding a piece or making a minor adjustment. It's a major adjustment. So let's get a little bit real here um, as we talk about right source in general and, and the company you and I started. We've gone through this a little bit ourselves, and I think part of the reason why we were excited about starting this podcast was to fill a little bit of the white space where – there's all these other marketing podcasts and all these other business podcasts. Um, you know, what's going to be different about ours? And I think one of the things I would say is that we're going to ask these kinds of questions. We're going to reveal this kind of stuff. Uh, we're going to share maybe more than others and maybe even, dare I say, more than we should. Like, we've we've kind of gone through that process recently. So talk a little bit about that, Mike. Yeah, so – before you get into tactical stuff, when you when you want to kind of change a company, transform a company, things like that, um, there, there's this thing called positioning, which is often confused with messaging and, and other concepts. But I heard I was listening to another podcast this weekend, uh, 
and I heard, an, I'm going to butcher this, but the, the person, I can't remember the guest's name, someone that's involved in business leadership marketing said, positioning is what happens before someone talks to someone in sales. Sales is just talking. Positioning is all the things that uh, influence them, qualify them, uh, get them warmed up uh, to to speak to someone that could actually sell them something. And, and I think that's where this whole thing starts is where do you want to position your company for future growth? Because it's often not where you're positioned now. So in some ways, then what you're saying is positioning and marketing are one and the same? No, it's just it's a it's a facet of marketing uh, at, a, at a high level that I think is a place where you need to start before you get into all the tactical stuff. What am I going to do? Gotcha. Yeah, because I think a lot of people look at that and they say, well, everything that happens, and, and that's the reason I asked the question, everything that happens is before sales, I guess that's all marketing, right? <laughs> well, you know, we won't we won't get into the sales marketing misalignment battle, you know, dysfunction, whatever you want to call it. But but the point is good marketing, especially in a business to business organization, good marketing makes the sale a lot easier. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, if you talk to salespeople who work in an organization where marketing is strong and effective and you talk to salespeople who work in an organization where marketing is not, you're gonna have two completely different conversations. Yep, absolutely. And, and I would argue their recruiters are going to have two completely different conversations and trying to get the best sales talent there, too. Yep. You know, if you want to be a successful salesperson, uh, seek out the places that are doing marketing really well, and that's going to be a huge part of uh, helping you get to that success fast. Right. It's, I mean, if you're, if you're a successful salesperson, uh, would, you, would you rather have an easy path to making you know, $200,000 or a hard path? I think I'm always going to choose the easy path. Sure. So, um, you know, tearing it down, breaking off pieces, if you will, to build bigger. We talked a little bit about like the positioning. Um, but I think as marketing changes, it's critically important whether you're sort of the CEO looking at the entire organization or you're the marketing leader looking at the marketing organization. Like what do those changes look like? Well, I, 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 I think first of all, I'm going to start at kind of a high level. Uh, a lot of organizations, when they go through any type of, uh, whether it be a planning exercise or some type of significant change, have a tendency to be too insular in their thinking. They look inside. They talk to their CEO. They talk to their team. What changes can we make? It, it sounds shocking. They forget to talk to their customers. They forget to talk to their prospects. They forget, or, or when I say forget, they might purposefully do this. They forget to get some outside perspective uh, from those groups, uh, other people that that know the, the the audience, the industry, and they they go about planning and changing just by talking to themselves, and that's just dangerous in and of itself. Yeah, and I think that um, as you sort of remain insular there, you fall really danger to doing the same things you've always done or doing the things your competitors are doing already versus really how do I get past that? How do I get ahead? What does kind of that next generation of buyer look like? How are they looking to interact? I mean, we've all seen these companies that sort of still market like it's, uh, you know, 1979, not even 1999, uh, to borrow off of Prince there for a minute. But how do companies, like, how do you avoid that? And then you know, how do they go and make some of those pretty big changes? Well, this is where it actually, as you know, I like to talk about kind of the, the human and behavior side of things and, and tying marketing and business to psychology. It, it, it's easy to say it starts with leadership, 
But it starts with the right type of leader. And that leader or leaders have to be introspective folks. They have to be self-aware to some extent. And, and they have to be the types that want that feedback, right? Like we've all, we've all interacted with people who never really want any feedback from people, unless it's positive, okay? Most people love the positive feedback. They don't want to really hear what they're doing wrong. So it really does start with a leader uh, or leaders that can look within themselves and say, I actually want feedback. I want feedback from the market. I want feedback from my team so that I can improve because – if the leaders improve, then that trickles down to the rest of whatever team you're trying to, you know, affect change with. Yeah, and I think it, the whole reason we started recording on this topic and going back to a previous interview we did, we were talking about risk, right? And I think part of that is being uh, risk embracing versus risk averse, whether you're the marketing leader or you're the C-suite folks, um, doing something different is risky uh, and kind of going out on that limb, but also you know, just about every great success has come from that type of risk taking, that type of kind of fearless behavior. Yeah, and listen, they're, 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 we run into companies like this all the time, and there's there's this they're they're not bad companies, but whether they know it or not, they've not chose chosen growth, right? They are actually comfortable with growing at five, ten percent every year, which is great for some people. That's a great number. Um, uh, they they think they want to grow faster, but when it comes to the discomfort associated with that, they're they're not willing to take those risks, and that's fine. That's a fine type of company. A lot of people would say I'd love to have that type of company too, but for those of us in kind of high growth mode, it's just it's just not enough. Yeah, I think there's sometimes complacency too, and that's not just hey we've always been doing these things. But um, one of the areas I see a lot with companies is. You know, we we latched on to this innovative marketing idea five or six years ago, so we're good now, you know, versus that constant, uh, where are we, where's the buyer going? So it's like, hey, no, you know, B2B content marketing, we started doing that six years ago. We haven't changed any of our formats. We haven't changed any of kind of the way our buyer might want to consume this or how we're delivering it. But gosh almighty, we were one of the first people to publish every single week on our blog. So, you know, double thumbs up for us. Yeah, and this, this kind of manifests itself in some form when a lot of people do kind of competitor or competitive analysis. Uh, they might look at how many social media followers competitor, competitor A has. They might look at things like search engine rankings. They might look at things like websites. And that's fine, right, because we always want to look at what the competition is doing. But what a lot of the step a lot of them don't take is go where they're not. Don't just catch up with them where they are. But where can you go that they're not? What can you do that is truly different? Or do you just want to be in that C? The question is, do you want to be number one? Or do you, are you cool with being like three or four? Totally different approaches. Yeah, I think that's a big piece, too. It's like, you know, we need to be doing this. Why do we be need, need to be doing that? Because our competitors are. Well, that's not always a good answer, right? Sometimes it is, right? We need to show up in Google because our competitors do. Probably a good approach if you're selling a product because if they show up and you don't, your buyers aren't finding you. But, you know, we need to be super active in Instagram videos as a B2B tech company. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. And and this happens a lot with that positioning concept or, or kind of core messaging is, is I certainly talk to a lot of companies and they say there's really nothing different about what we do and what we offer. Uh-oh. Right? How frightening is that? Especially if you are the person or persons leading the company, 
and you can't articulate what you may do differently. And, and where people get lost is, I get it, your product may be exactly the same as the next guy, but there's a story, whether it's how you started the company, the problem you're trying to solve, your mission, the people you use to solve the problem. If you can't find that this is what makes us different, you got that, that I wouldn't even start planning because that's where you have to start is what's your unique positioning. Yeah, I think that thing's key, right? Because as much as people talk about being a rational buyer, um, every buyer buys emotionally and justifies rationally, right? So there's something, whether that's connecting to a story, whether that's connecting to an experience, whether that's um, you know some feature that feels like it saves your life and then you can rationally justify it because it saves this much time. Um, but it's, it's really all about, uh, dare I say, one of my favorite words, Mike, feelings. Mm, feelings, yeah. That's, I mean, exactly what you said. In the end, you know, we're part of businesses, but we're all individual humans buying from other individual humans. It's not as cold as we make it out to be. Well, and if I see one more time, and you and I have been through these exercises, messages for professional services firms, for instance, is like, oh, we're a technology firm and we have the smartest coders and the smartest engineers and we do stuff really well and effectively and efficiently and we deliver on time. Like those are all so me too, right? Yep. Any any of your competitors probably has the exact same things written down as things they do well. So you need to shape that into some type of story. You need to shape that into some type of a differentiator versus, you know, I don't think many competitors are out there saying, we hire people that are marginally intelligent, but probably not that smart. We deliver on time most of the time and usually stay within budget, but like every now and then, eh, not so much. Yeah. Yeah. No, and it's, uh, especially with, Product companies, although it's really across the board, um, they, they tend to start focusing on features, okay? My product does X, Y, and Z. If you take it to the next level, then they might focus on benefits. But even some of those benefits aren't what I would call human behavior benefits. If you take it to the next level after benefits, it's like, how do you actually want the person to feel? Do you want them to feel good about themselves? Do you want to feel like, do you want them to feel like by doing this, they can get promoted? Do you want them to feel like they're less stressed, right? That's what we forget about is it all goes back to the person buying it and the feeling you want to extract from it. Yeah, I think it's really understanding that audience and that sort of addressable market too, right? So the early adopter market is often kind of feature driven or this thing solves a very discrete problem that I had. And so I've latched on, particularly in, say, technology tools like you spoke about, technology products. Uh, but then you start looking at, okay, where's the rest of the market? Um, and who's a potential buyer? And I think just importantly, where a lot of companies miss is who's not, right? So no, everyone should use my solution. It's fantastic. And that's really hard to market to everyone and get everyone to buy. There's very few things that are really of interest to everyone. Yeah, and I can tell you this, we kind of, I, I took you off track a bit, but to veer back to, uh, you know, right source specific example. So that's one of the things we did. One of the first places we started with positioning is, is, hey, we're going to market to a business to business technology company audience. Doesn't mean we'll never work with anyone else. But in order to successfully have a marketing and business development function to grow the business, we had to narrow it down, which is hard for people, especially if they have other types already buying their stuff. It fright and it is frightening 
It's frightening for us, but those are the types of risks that you absolutely have to take if you want to go next level. Well, Mike, you and I have had those conversations too, and, and people in our organization. You know, so I got contacted by a company that is in field X because they read our stuff and they need help with marketing and they think we might be able to help them solve those problems. And you know, the natural reaction is, but a couple of weeks ago we said we're working with B2B tech companies what do I do? Well, and, and, and that's why I always differenti- differentiate internally. There's the market that we market to, if you will. Sorry to over-market. Um, that doesn't mean you can't work with others. It's just the message you put into the marketplace publicly about who you want to work with. Then it becomes, and I'm, I'm kind of going right source specific, then it becomes the job of the people talking to prospective clients that may not fall in that bucket to vet the heck out of them and figure out, will they be a fit here with the other folks that we work with? And that is, again, that goes to the human side. There's no formula for that. It's like it's being able to meet with someone, understand them, understand their needs, and figure out, is this going to make us better? Yeah, and I think particularly um – the focus at right source it's really specific, right? I mean, if you start rattling off some of the verticals we've worked in and some of the companies we worked with, I mean, really specific things. Yeah, it's 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 the specific of the specific. I would argue it's as as niche. Uh, some of our the folks we work with as as niche as it gets. We don't need to name the categories, but they're things that. Um, certainly when I got into this business, I was like, I didn't know I was going to be dealing with these types of things. And, uh, that's, but that's what makes it cool. Cause it's more challenging and it's more sophisticated. And, and frankly, as a company, it makes us more valuable to those clients. Yeah. So as a CEO or VP marketing of a company, when they're thinking about, okay, where's my next move, right? Cause we started this with what got me here may not get me there. Right. So you've gotten to a certain level and people say, wow, that company's really done something. Um, but as a CEO or the marketing leader, you've got a little bit of a vision for what that next something is. Um, we talked about kind of that positioning and that, but but how do people then kind of roll that out internally, right? You talked about being about people and that change can be uncomfortable for the organization, right? Oh, so you're saying we focus on B2B tech companies now. We didn't used to do that. What about my existing customers? What about these prospects? What about the fact that I know more about something that's a different topic? You know, how do how do departments handle that? How do leaders handle that? Yeah, well, it's it's uh, it's got to be kind of a, a trickle down effect, meaning that change, if it is a big change, has to get communicated from the top first, and then move down to every level systematically. So, you know, you're counting on your CEO or whoever is at the top of your marketing organization. To, to communicate well enough, which is important, that they communicate it and then it goes down each level. Um, that's how you get buy-in. It's, it's more complex than that, but that's where it starts. Again, it's people-to-people communication. Yeah, I think the challenge, too, is often in these situations, actually pretty much every time these situations, you know, bad analogy, but the plane is in the air. And so we need to keep flying the plane while we're also looking at potentially re-engineering some pieces of the plane because the business doesn't stop. The need to drive revenue doesn't stop, and so you're you're making a lot of these shifts while you're continuing to operate in all the ways you need to operate every day. Yeah, and that's that that is that's a great point because that's really hard when the the plane's in the air. Um, that's why it becomes about certain 
micro and sometimes macro actions that you take as a leader after you've kind of announced this repositioning, right? You're not going to be perfect, but if you if you take that and say, I have to stay true to who we are, and your actions reflect that, people pick up on those things. Well, I think let's take it down to the real day-to-day level, right? If I'm the VP marketing and I want to go through this type of a positioning exercise and really focus, I can't shut off lead gen. My sales reps still need people to contact, and so, you know, it's usually not an okay situation to walk up to the C-suite and say, hey, good news, I've decided to focus on repositioning the company. and We're going to slow revenue a ton for the next you know, quarter, maybe two quarters, so we can really talk better about who we are and who we're trying to target. That doesn't usually fly in most cases. No, um, but, but I think that's why you can't view it as a, an overnight change, right? Like, let's say you're a VP of marketing and um, – you've decided that your new target, I'm going to use a vertical example, is is manufacturing and that you really don't want to deal with, I don't know, retailers anymore. Okay. So you've got two verticals there. doesn't have to happen overnight. Your target should actually be, and, and you know, I'm, this is fictitious. I don't know why you don't want to work with retailers, but let's assume there's a good reason is over a year period of time or two or two years, you're phasing them out, right? As you're picking up manufacturing it, you have to take those actions and people have to see them over time, but it's not like a, this all happens in one day. And so getting to kind of that next logical step, because marketing is all about measurement now, and, and some people would say always, um, how do people start to measure, all right, we've made some of these changes, we're building in a different direction. You know, what are some of those early indicators? Because in my experience, people like your C-suite and your board members and your uh, VC firms and your PE firms and everyone who's got a stake in the organization or, you know, maybe just yourself, wants to know, how do I know if it's starting to work? So I'll group it in two categories. The first is is we'll just group it as data, okay, which is awfully broad, but data, things like pipeline, lead generation, customer wins in that particular category, things like that. That's very objective. I think the more subjective is what you get from the market, whether you call it sentiment or message sentiment or confirmation of your positioning, right? That often comes from people like your sales force that's on the front lines. And sometimes it's as simple as things like, hey, I came back from a meeting and this guy that I met with who's in the manufacturing sector said something to me like, wow, you guys clearly are like set up to serve manufacturing, right? It's it's those little tidbits that, yeah, you can do market surveys and things like that. But oftentimes what I t- tell people is get it right from the front lines. Draw it out of your people who actually talk to the people you're trying to reach. So let's get real tactical for a minute. What does that look like? Is that you know the marketing leader taking their salespeople to lunch once a month? Is that kind of a fly by their desk? What, what does that look like? Well, first of all, it starts with having a, a functional versus dysfunctional sales and marketing relationship. And you and I both know we run into a lot of dysfunction between sales and marketing. The best nah. organization. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a thing, it turns out. The, the best organizations I've seen um, have minimized that dysfunction. I won't say it's completely functional, but they've minimized it. And their marketing leader and their sales leader are held up at the same level. And it starts there, those two working together. And then, yeah, it's there's all kinds of tactical things like, you know, providing free lunch to your 10 salespeople so you can ask them questions about what prospects think and, 
and things like that. That there, You can do all kinds of things, but it starts with having the right relationship at the top. Hey, the good news for us at RightSource is our sales leader, Mike Sweeney, has decided to come on a podcast hosted by our marketing leader. So clearly there's some relationship there. Yeah, we are totally aligned, even though we're on opposite sides of the table. That is uh, physically true at this very moment in our um, high high uh, quality recording studio. Yeah. Good. Um, so we've talked a lot about some of these kind of changes and how to get companies where they're going, but maybe on a bigger level, Mike, like where do you see marketing going? Oh boy. Um, well, so I think we've, we've talked about in the past, uh, where marketers are going and how 20 years ago we were kind of a softer profession and arts and crafts and all those words we've used. And now, um, We've progressed quite a bit in the eyes of the business community. So that's a start, but there's some work to do there in terms of uh, proving our contribution to, to revenue generation and the like. A, a couple areas, though, if I'm, uh, if I'm thinking about it, like storytelling is as big as ever, and it's only getting bigger. Like gone are the days of just trying to push a, push a message to someone or to many and having it very um, forceful and uncreative and and – not humanizing. So stories come in all different forms, but but marketers need to get better uh, at, at storytelling. The second thing, and I could probably give you seven, but like one to many is over. It's all one to one now. Now you may be marketing to many, but how do you narrow that many down into each individual consumer business person and how you get to them uh, I just think the concept of, if you want to call it mass marketing, is 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 pretty much over. Interesting, yeah, and we're seeing a lot of that. Um, you know, even as you talk about sort of that one to one, or kind of the feeling of one to one, right? So technology for personalization, and when I go to a website, knowing what I already looked at in the past, or you know, giving me the message for a marketing persona versus a CEO persona or a financial persona. Um, so, I think one of the uh, one of the challenges I see too, as well as a huge opportunity, is um, that one-to-one feel, but also, dare I say, buzzword alert uh, at scale, mm-hmm. which everyone loves to talk about anything happening at scale. Um, so, you know, ways that people can keep that one-to-one connection, but do it in a way that actually is is uh, deliverable. Right, and you do that uh, going back to one of our initial points by narrowing your audience down. Okay, so for instance, I, hi, I'm Mike. I own a marketing agency. So (laughs) that means that there are probably, I have 75% of my obstacles are similar to anyone else in my role. Maybe not 100%, but 75%. So that is taking that at scale, meaning if you were marketing to me, and, and you talk to me about the feelings you're feeling, about the problems you're having inside the life of an agency owner, that's going to be similar, okay, to hundreds if not thousands of other people out there. So when that, that's exactly it. It's taking a certain segment, narrowing it down, and then speaking to them directly um, and making it as personalized as you can. Great. Good approach. So, Mike, as we wrap things up today, um, love to leave people with a takeaway What's one really actionable thing that they can start doing? So I'm going to go back to something I said earlier and start with like why you are unique as a company. What makes you unique? Go beyond the product you provide, the service you provide, and really think about 
the people that do it, the way in which you do it, uh, the history that has has shaped you. And what I'll say is treat this when you answer questions like this, when people ask you, you know, about your differentiators like a fifth grader was and keep asking why. Why is that unique, though? Why? Like, why does that? Why are these people unique? Why is this product unique? Dig on the why until you actually feel like, wow, I have exhausted this thing. So that's where I'd start this whole process with. Awesome. Great tip. Thanks, Mike. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me.